book of Jonah. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Jonah. We are in chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we just thank you for this time together, and we thank you so much, Lord, just for your word, the clarity of it. We thank you so much just for the, the messages, plural, that are in this book, Lord. Not only the whole Bible, but in, even in Jonah alone, so much to learn, Lord, so much to apply so much here to be, to warn our hearts, so much here to encourage us with your mercy, Lord, and your love and your character. I pray that you guide us through it all this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Jonah, if you were not here with us last week, just in case. I just got this map of the prophets, a different one than we had last week, to show you where Jonah is. So he, some of you have seen where um, this map many times, but uh, it's the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Now under Sol after Solomon, there was a division in the north, there was one kingdom in the south, in, the, in Judah there was another kingdom, and so um, the Jonah actually appeared, if you could just go down a little more, all the way down, this guy named Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II, that's where he was, just to, to, to give you an idea of, of where he was, so... Uh, in the south, you've already had Asa and Jehoshaphat as king. Ahab is long gone by this time. Um, the house of Ahab, real wicked king. He was married to Jezebel. And that's good, good. All right, you're still getting that right. And uh, Elijah had prophesied to Ahab that his, his descendants would be destroyed. And by this time, Jehu actually was the one who had fulfilled that prophecy by going around and killing a whole lot of people and all of Ahab's uh, descendants. And under Jeroboam II, uh, real interesting story for a prophet. I talked about this last week that Jonah was actually a prophet. If you look, um, I believe we read from Second Kings where he prophesied all kinds of good things to happen uh, in that in that reign, that the kingdom would be expanded all around, and in fact, it did happen. And so, no doubt, uh, he, or there's a good reason to believe he was an awfully popular guy. Most of the time, prophets uh, are not popular at all. And when you're getting real popular, and you're a man or woman of God, you need to sort of go, oh no, I know this isn't going to last. I know God's going to humble me in one way or another. And that indeed is what happened with Jonah. God told him 
to go in chapter 1 to go to enemy territory to this city of Nineveh. At that time, the largest city in the world and quite possibly the most wicked city in the world. All kinds of stuff. You can find it now on the internet of how cruel they were to their enemies, just raping, pillaging, murdering, and entire cities would commit suicide rather than be taken over by the Ninevites or the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Jonah said, uh, forget it, and he went in the opposite direction. And he went towards Tarshish, which we don't know where that is. A lot of people think it's Spain, but um, I have my own theory that it was on the east coast of Africa, but uh, rather the west coast of Africa. Some believe it's Great Britain. doesn't matter. What's important is it's like he does what we do sometimes. Rather than obey God, I'm going to go the farthest place I can go uh, from the Lord. And it actually says that he... Uh, left the presence of the Lord in chapter one, which I, I, in, in, in verse three, it's a really important verse. Although it's true, it's impossible to get away from the Lord. We can certainly, in the sense that He's omnipresent, He's everywhere. We can certainly get away from His presence. It says there in verse three of chapter one, in the sense that we're removing ourselves from His support, that we're really in a dangerous place because we're sort of on our own. We're not hearing from him. Um, God becomes silent because we deliberately, we make a choice. And so uh, he leaves there. A tremendous storm comes up. He's sleeping in the, uh, in the belly of the ship. He's sleeping down there. The, the people in the ship, they're all a bunch of non-unbelievers. They go and get him, and they find out who he is. They question him. He tells them uh, who he is, that he's a worshiper of Jehovah uh, who made the heavens. And uh, they uh, eventually uh, cast lots as to you know whose fault everything is, and it uh, goes... Uh, J- Jonah's picked out and um, at that point and this is an important point they cast lots as to whose fault it was uh, Jonah actually they, they came up to him uh, after the lot was cast to him the, in Proverbs it says that every cast of the lot is from the Lord rather than at that point say you know, Lord, I will go to Nineveh. He says, throw me in the ocean. Again, we talked about this last week. This is a a picture of how stubborn we get with the things of, when it comes to what the Lord is telling us to do in our life. Here's a man who's willing to be thrown into a raging, into the raging sea rather than just repent and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do things your way. I will go to Nineveh. So if that's not incredible, what is, is that they wind up throwing him into the ocean, and the last verse of chapter 1 says he spends three nights uh, and three days, three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. Finally, 
at the end of three days and three nights, Jonah repents and says, okay, whatever you want to do, I'll do. It's a picture, uh, never underestimate the power of your stubbornness and my stubbornness. Never underestimate it. It is amazing, you know, just, uh, just in my own life, just going back to when the Lord was dealing with me, how stubborn I was, and ever, even since being a Christian, how stubborn I could be just in my own ways. This is a great picture of how stubborn we could get. Again, I said this last week, man, if I was fl- uh, swallowed by a whale, I would certainly hope while I was, going, I was going through the throat of the thing, I would be crying out, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. No, he goes down into the pitch dark belly of a whale. It does say great fish. Jesus calls it a whale. Uh, and so I'm going to stick with what Jesus uh, calls this, this creature. And... Um, we know that sperm whales are big enough in terms of their throat, their belly, and everything else uh, to, to, to hold a person. Uh, but regardless of whether it was a sperm whale or anything else, clearly, you know, it's a miracle that, that he's down there for three days, for three days. I love reflecting just before, you know, going on into chapter two on two things. One, there's been so much controversy about uh, whether or not this is real, that the far greater miracle in this book is not the fact that a human being went into a whale. It's that a city of one million people turned radically to, to the Lord. I mean, when you, when you think of how hard hearts are and what it takes for um, people to turn to the Lord. I mean, the Lord will, loves us so much, he'll, he'll do anything to make us until we turn to him. And the fact that a city of a whole million. And then the other thing I just love that I reflected on last, uh, 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 last week was verse 2 where of chapter one where he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That when we see wickedness, we see something very different than what the Lord sees. He sees a backdrop of mercy. What we see is just in our own eyes, there's hatred and contempt. I was talking about that this morning. Even though it says their wickedness had come up before him. He saw a backdrop of mercy and an opportunity to repent. So Jonah, verse 1, it does say in the last verse of chapter 1, it says that he was in the fish three days and three nights. It does say, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. So it does indeed indicate that it took three days. It took three days uh, down there. He's one stubborn dude. He said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me. You know, one of the comforting things of, in the word of God and uh, 
there's a verse in in in, in First John like this is that when we as we grow in the Lord, that's all we need to know to get that peace from the Lord is that He's heard us. Notice here, it doesn't say He answered me. He cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and He answered me. Here it is. Out of the belly of, rather, it goes on to say, out of the belly of Sheol I cried out and you heard my voice. In other words, he already knows because the Lord has heard him that the Lord is going to answer. And I tell you, this is the place that the Lord wants to bring you. Just that peace and assurance that comes about when we have when we just know the Lord has heard us, irrespective of whether we've seen a physical manifestation of an answer. That's where the Lord wants us. We've prayed it. He's heard us. And therefore, we have that assurance that he's going to answer us. Why? Because he has heard it's a wonderful thing that we come to the point where that's all we need, that just to know that the Lord has heard. Now, he quotes several psalms uh, in, this, in this prayer here. We say all the time around here, we talk about the Word of God being a springboard for prayer. This is an example right here. Verse 3 says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows, all your billows, and your waves passed over me. And that's, that, that is a quote from uh, Psalm 42. In Psalm 42... It says, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Verse 4 says, then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. And if you look at Psalm 31, 22, that's where he's picking that up from. This is Jonah. He's living quite a bit after David. David, if you scroll up, can you scroll up? David's all the way up here. David's written his psalms. This is just a part of the language of this prophet. And that he's memorized David's psalms here. Verse 4, Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. That's Psalm 31, 22. Yet I will look toward your holy temple. This is Psalm 138, 2. The water, the, verse 5, the waters surround me even to my soul. If you look at Psalm 69, uh, verse 1, it says, uh, for the waters have come up to my neck. I believe the King James says soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. And I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought me up from life from the pit, 
O Lord, my God. And so it's, it's very important to talk about some very basic things, one of them being Jonah knew these psalms. He knew them. And what a mistake you're making if you're waiting to the crisis happens to know the word of God. Because if you wait till the crisis happens to start getting into the Bible, you're just going to be freaking out. It's, it's, because he, it's because he knew the word of God that he's able to cry it out now. If you have not memorized scripture, you should be doing so. I strongly recommend just putting them on note cards while you're whatever, um, in the subway or, you know, in the doctor's office, rather than looking at Oprah, okay, as you're waiting for the doctor. You just, you, you, you have those there. I, and, 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 you know, I have put to memory uh, a number of psalms, and it is so valuable when we feel like we are in the belly of a whale. And so he, he knows these by heart. It says, when my soul fainted within me, verse 7, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you and to your holy temple. That's uh, Psalm 18, 6. So finally, this is what it took. Three days in the belly of the whale for him to remember the Lord. Now, does this mean that somehow he had forgotten that the Lord existed? No, but there was no dialogue between him and God. He was deliberately pushing God out. Deliberately pushing the Lord out. And uh, it's, it, it, And finally, you know, the Lord brings him to a place where it says he's remembering him. He's allowing that just he he is just allowing this um, the language the prayer language that God had given him to come alive in his heart that's what it that's what it means when he says I remembered the Lord verse 8 says those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Now, the King James says those who regard lying vanities, they forsake their own mercy. And that word mercy, I believe it's that same word I've been talking about on Sunday, I I talked about last Sunday night, it's that word chesed. I believe that's uh, the word used here. It, It just... It's, it's, it's loving kindness is often how it's translated. But here you see him owning his, starting to own his sin now. He had believed 
lying vanities. What he's saying that he's embracing repentance here. He, I, 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 I really believe I have been doing things my way. That is idolatry. When we, when we insist on control. I was quoting this book this morning called One Way Love. And, he, and it's funny, the, the author, author uh, Tullian Trevigian, he defines idolatry as just having control. And, and here we see those who regard worthless idols, those who cling to the idolatry of maintaining control, they forsake their own mercy. We're, we're actually forsaking loving kindness, the loving kindness of the Lord, by retaining control. He said, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. See, supremely when he is or we are running away from God's will or insisting on doing something different than what God wants us to do, not only are we, you know, has, has the, the sort of idolatry come into our heart, but we're also pushing aside the voice of thanksgiving. And, and because as we thank the Lord, whenever we praise the Lord, because there's such a high premium in the Bible put on praising the Lord, the, the, one of the reasons is, is because as we do it, we give up. We give up control we give up the idolatry of control. When we maintain control, though, I think one of the reasons we don't come to the Lord with praise, with thanksgiving, with you know, writing out everything that he's done with us or journaling it out on a, res- uh, on a regular basis, on a regular basis, because instinctively we know if we start praising the Lord, we're going to be forced to give them control again. That's why we did, one of the reasons we don't praise the Lord, that's one of the reasons the devil doesn't want us to praise the Lord. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. What do you think he vowed? Any guesses what he vowed? Go to Nineveh. Go to Nineveh. I missed you in the service this morning. Man, I was asking questions and... When Andrew's there, it's loud and clear. I get it. <laughs> but uh, that's right. You know, the Lord, it's, it's, you know, the old game of crying uncle. It's finally... He says, okay, I give up. I will go to the city. You know, God was just going to f- keep feeding him oxygen and keeping him alive until he did what he was required to do, I, what the Lord wanted him to do. I'm convinced that he was okay with death at this point. Uh, up until this point, he was like, I'm okay with dying. I want to die. I'd rather die. I'm familiar with that feeling, by the way. Elijah, I have a piece of Elijah in me. 
And he's just tired of doing the will of God. God, just take me. Just take me. I know very much what it's like to, um, to, to think like that, you know, because sometimes doing the will is really hard, and, and man, that's the cry of our heart. But God didn't let Elijah die, and he didn't let Jonah die. And finally said, okay, if you're not going to kill me, I'm, I'll do what, what you want me to do, because, man, this belly stinks. Can you imagine being in a belly with rotting squid? I mean, I've spent a lot of time, on, you know, in the docks at, at Cape Cod and stuff near fishing. I, I tell you, it's not, it's not a cool place to, like, to hang out, you know. Rotting fish is one of the worst things. When you mix it with, like, everything else that's in there, everything else that found its way in there, rotting seaweed, he says here in verse 5, weeds were wrapped around my head. I mean, this is not a good thing. And I love that. Salvation is of the Lord. There's something beautiful about just, you know, recognizing that, that there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we may be saved. Salvation is from the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Hey, so we can learn something from this whale, right? This whale obeyed immediately. (laughs) this, this, This whale had the obedience thing down so much better than Jonah did. You know, all it took was a word. It's like, blah, this type of thing. Now, um, I don't want to belabor the point about, you know, whales and stuff and, and the whole argument about, you know, whether this was um, uh, really a whale or not, I believe, believe with all my heart that, you know, this is not an allegory. This actually happened, but it so happens that sperm whales, um, right before they die, this is what they do. They just vomit up on, uh, on land. Isn't that a nice, tasty, good Sunday night uh, conversation? By the way, Robert Ingersoll, who was practically a household name. He was a household name in the late 1800s. Anyone ever hear him? Robert Ingersoll? He was a famous agnostic in the late 1800s. Yes, they were, they, they were plenty of famous agnostics then as well. And thousands actually used to go to, um, to hear him. There's a story of him going up to just a, a teenage girl who worked for the Salvation Army. Salvation Army and him really butted heads. And he went up to her and he said, you really, you mean you really believe in the Bible? She said, yes. So you really believe there was a guy named Jonah? Yes, I do. And he said, well, how is a man supposed to stay in the belly of a whale for three days? And she said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And he said, well, what if you get to heaven and he's not there? And she said, well, then you can ask him after you die. (laughs) Um, So um, anyway, uh, we believe that uh, Jonah was in... 
the belly of the whale. And, and the thing is, Jesus believed it. He said it. So he was in the belly of a whale. Chapter 3 says, Now when the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. It's interesting, slightly different than chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. Here he says, Stick with the message that I tell you. He's very specific. He knows, because he knows our hearts, they're desperately wicked beyond cure, (laughs) that Jonah would either subtract or add if he wasn't told specifically so. He says, you do the message, preach the message that I tell you. Not one word more, not one word less. There is a temptation to add. You know, as I look, sometimes I, I look through old sermons of mine and, uh, and I'm like, why did, why am I saying all, everything that I'm saying? Like, like there's, I'm saying twice as much as I should be saying, you know, and it really does take discipline to just focus on really what the Lord wants us to say because we always want to get into our little sort of pet peeve issues and, and this type of thing. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Now, of course, that doesn't seem that doesn't mean from a morality standpoint. It means just as an economic powerhouse and its population. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. So from one side to the other, it took three days to journey through it. In verse 11 of chapter 4, it's the final verse of of the whole book. It says, Lord's telling Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. So apparently what this means, he's talking about livestock and he's talking about really little kids and babies who don't even, he goes, you want me to destroy this city? There's all these babies there. They don't even know their right from their left. They haven't even gotten to the age of accountability. You want me to torch this city? Jonah? 120,000 kids under age, so that's not including, you know, older kids, young adults, 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 older people, elderly people. This is a big city. A three-day journey in extent. So again, the miracle, the miracle 
of a million people coming to the Lord. It's so much bigger. The devil's just trying to make the other thing as a, a distraction of whether a human being was actually in the belly of the whale. There's, this is, according to the Bible, the record we have, this is the greatest revival in the history of the world, right here in the book of Jonah, a three-day journey from one end to the other. In verse 4, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And then he cried out, and he said, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So, I do think that it is a fair thing, and we mentioned this briefly last week when uh, Jesus in the book of Matthew uh, talks about Jonah. He said, he spoke, Jesus speaks about the sign of Jonah, a sign from, from him and, and not from his preaching that led to repentance, but a sign. So many scholars say it's because of that, that, that sign that a lot of people think that it's literally the way Jonah looked, that he was bleached when he came out of that whale. All the enzymes or the chemicals, and he came out just completely white. And again, if you do, uh, if you do research on this stuff, th- th- there's been some, you know, a number of these different episodes when the whale industry was in full gear uh, of people being spit out who were completely bleach white. And so it really could be that, you know, here you have this guy coming in and he's completely bleached. And we're not talking just like a white dude. Uh, We're talking about someone who is bleach white, whose hair, he's bald, because the, the enzymes have just, you know, completely taken his hair off. His, his eyebrows are gone. His eyelashes are gone. And he is a strange-looking creature. And he's saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. A sackcloth was people took off their garments, their expensive clothes or whatever, their everyday clothes, and they just put on basically potato sacks, that type of thing, burlap or whatever. The word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, now this is really heavy language here. And keep in mind, this is someone who is a pagan. He didn't grow up in a Christianized country. You know, today in this country, we don't call people pagans. Sounds like a mean term, but a, what a pagan means is a heathen. Someone who's never grown up in an environment 
that hasn't been church or doesn't have that heritage. So someone who has grown up in this country, even if they've never been to church, they've been exposed to the things of God. Just through the media and other, you know, this is a pagan. Now, at this time, it is true that there had, there had, the Syrians were already making inroads, um, I believe at this time they were already making inroads into northern Israel. The Israelites knew who they were. Jonah apparently knew very well who they were. And so it's very likely, uh, likely that um, he knew about God. Now remember, if you can just push this up a little, uh, Dave. Remember, stop there. After Ahab... And I think it was during Ahaziah, it, it may have been Jehoram, where you had Elisha the prophet and this just amazing story of Naaman the leper. And remember what happened there? The Syrians had come in, raided the north, stolen a Jewish slave girl, took her back to Assyria, could very well be uh, Nineveh, Naaman was a general in the Assyrian army. He had leprosy. And just one of the most powerful stories in all the, the Bible. It's one of my favorite chapters to, to read about. This, this, this Jewish girl, forgotten, completely obscure, <laughs> winds up developing one of the most powerful testimonies in all of the Bible. She shares with this general that there is a prophet in Israel and who, who has a, who's connected with Jehovah and is able to heal people. And he winds up you know, going to the king of Israel. The king of Israel freaks out, eventually figures out what's going on, sends this to Elisha. That's before this time. So probably what is going on is the king knows, at, uh, by this point, the king does know about Jehovah, but he hasn't been churched. He hasn't been schooled. Jehovah is just one of a pantheon of gods. And what he says here in verse 7, he says, uh, he makes a decree, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. He knew, the Assyrians, we covered this last week, they were so violent, they, uh, and we, were, we talked about it briefly already tonight, that they were so violent, they would just go into the cities, they would just kill everyone, uh, many people, they would skin alive and use their skin and cover the walls of cities. They were violent, and people say, oh, you know, they were just barbaric, they didn't know what they were you know, doing the noble savage or whatever. Yes, they did. It says right here, they knew full well that, that we need to turn from the violence that is in our hands. When a human being made in the image of God is killing another human being, they know it's wrong and that it violates God's law. I find that remarkable. Verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and relent 
and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I'd just love to know whether or not this king knew about the story of Naaman. When we think about it, Naaman had gone into Israel and killed, you know, not millions, but probably thousands of Israelites, and yet Naaman was genuinely and radically saved. I think it's pretty clear from the account that he was a genuine born-again believer. It's interesting, the people that the Lord saves. You know, it says in, 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 in chapter 1 that the, that the guys who threw Jonah into the ocean, it said after that, it said that in verse 16 of chapter 1 is that they feared the Lord exceedingly. Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Jehovah that they feared Jehovah exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. It's entirely possible one of these guys may be saved. Can you imagine getting to heaven one day? Oh, so what was your deal on earth? Oh, I was one of the guys who threw Jonah overboard. <laughs> oh, really? You know, um, uh, but, but the Lord delights to save. And I do, I, it, so it, it, it says here, then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. This was a genuine turning to the Lord. You know, many times you will get a question about, you know, what happened to, like, unbelieving nations, non-Jewish nations before Jesus came. You don't know how many Ninevehs there were. We don't know how many Ninevehs are out there. Just, there may have been a number of other Ninevehs. There may have been Ninevehs on the other side of the world. We don't know. By the way, if you look just in, in the book of First and Second Samuel, there's many people, non-Jews, who become believers in Jehovah and who were, you know, became a part of, uh, of, of the kingdom. You know, Hitt, Uriah the Hittite is just, there was a number of ites that, um, that, that, that came into Israel. But, but here, an entire city... Saved, it says then. Then, then God saw their works. And John the Baptist said, when people were coming out to him to be baptized, he said, "Don't think that. Don't say because we have Abraham as our father that somehow you are in God's good favor." but produce works in keeping with repentance. They're, they're, the Bible does say a genuine faith is followed by works. The works don't save you, but they are an evidence of salvation. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So, the Lord has a way of getting us to do His will. And you know, one comforting thing here for me 
especially doing ministry in, here in New England, results are God's responsibility. They are God's responsibility. I mean, you have a guy like Jeremiah, and I'm telling you, we was so blessed teaching through Jeremiah, just truly one of the most godly men with integrity in the, in the whole Bible. He loved the Lord. He had such a, he had such a deep, powerful relationship with the Lord. Just reading through Jeremiah and how he cries out to God. It was just so real. And he was so faithful. People beating him up and throwing him to the bottom of a well and making him live in the mud. And there was not a single convert. Jeremiah's reign. And here you have a guy who... Um, I'll just cheat a little and go into verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, but it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. He just basically pouched the rest of the book. Who, his attitude was all wrong. What he does was completely reluctant. He was reluctant, you know, to do what he did. And then you have a million people being saved. You know, I, you know, I get confused sometimes when I see you know, a ministry of a church where the pastor falls into some kind of sin, you know, and has to step down from ministry, and you look at the ministry, and it's like, Lord, why did you let it go on for so long? Why did you let the sin go on for so long? I mean, thank you, Lord, for bringing it to the light. And I don't know, I do not have all the answers to it, but I know one thing, it's, it's the, you know, the Lord loves to save people. <laughs> and he says it in the book of Philippians, even when Christ is preached from a bad motive and from a vessel that, you know, where there's, there's even wickedness, God is glorified when people come to the Lord. It's hard getting our eyes off man. It really is. And on to the Lord. But um, the results are with him. They're his responsibility. So we're going to just uh, finish up this evening with, uh, with prayer. If you need to go, you can, uh, you can get a token from, from James back there. But we're going to just spend the last... Uh, 20 minutes just praying about some things. We